If you would, turn to the 17th chapter of the book of Matthew. No, I don't have 12 children. Of course, in the play, he only has nine. He keeps talking about the babies that are upstairs, but they never bring them down. And unbeknownst to most people, one of the 12 actually died when she was five, so there weren't actually 12 at any one time, but they did have 12, and he keeps referring to them as his little Bolivians. Last week, we covered the transfiguration, which is at the start of chapter 17. Jesus took his inner circle up on the mountain and revealed to them his glory. He glowed with the glory of his godship. And with him uh, appeared Elijah and Moses, the law and the prophets, to validate who he was. And then in addition to that, the voice of God spoke and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The three witnesses necessary to validate in a Jewish court that an event actually occurred. So while they've been up on the mountain having their mountaintop experience, the rest of the disciples have been down in the valley doing a lousy job. And that's where we're going to pick up today. Starting in verse 14, and when they came to the crowd, they came down from the mountain, they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water, and I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. So while he was up on the mountain having this meeting with Moses and Elijah, the disciples were down below, and a man brought his son who was having fits. Now, Let's make sure we understand something. This verse is not saying that people who have epilepsy necessarily are demon-possessed. We're not even going to go there, right? This individual was demon-possessed and was having fits. So he had the symptoms of epilepsy caused by being demon-possessed. So they brought the boy to the disciples. The disciples tried to work their magic, and nothing happened. So Jesus comes down the mountain. The father comes running to Jesus and says, Lord, help me. These worthless disciples can't do anything. Well, he didn't say that. But he said, my son is harming himself. He is falling into the fire. He's falling into the water. Please save him. And then we have a really strange statement on the part of Jesus. You almost get the idea that he's kind of ticked off at somebody. Now, I don't really think Jesus gets ticked off at people, but we'll argue about that later when we talk about Pharisees and things like that. But Jesus says in verse 17, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. How long do I have to put up with this? Who's he tired of? Who's he upset with? Why is he saying, how long do I have to put up with this? We're going to answer that question in just a moment. He then tells the demon to get lost and the boy is healed. It's interesting, as I work through these different passages, you know, I go, okay, this sounds interesting, we'll talk about this, this sounds interesting, I'll talk about that. And I've got this, you know, part of me that says, okay, This is another healing. We've done healing, we've done healing, we've done healing, we've done healing. We don't need another healing to talk about. And it amazes me that we get so used to reading about Jesus healing somebody that we lose the importance of the fact that Jesus told a demon to leave and the demon left. He just said go, and the demon didn't argue with him. The demon didn't put up a fight. The the demon didn't put up his fist and say, come on, let's duke it out. He just left. Why? 
because he was messing with God. And while the disciples had trouble understanding who Jesus was, I'm pretty sure the demon knew who Jesus was. So, the demon leaves. The boy is healed. But what about the disciples? And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was instantly healed. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately, not in front of the crowd, privately, and said, why could we not cast it out? Why couldn't we do this? Now remember, earlier in the story, Jesus had sent the disciples out two by two, and he had given them the authority to cast out demons. They had been told they could do this. But on this occasion, they couldn't. Why couldn't they do it? Jesus is going to answer the question. And he's going to give us an insight into why we, at different times, like, lack the power that God intended us to have. He said to them, because of your little faith. We have seen this over and over again throughout the book of Matthew. He turns to the disciples on several occasions and says, you're lacking faith. He turns to devout pagans. He's turned to a Roman centurion and said, wow, you have great faith. Why? Because the centurion believed that Jesus could heal his servant just by speaking the command. He didn't have to go. He didn't have to wave a magic wand. He just had to speak and the servant would be healed. And Jesus said, that's great faith. Remember the woman, the Canaanite woman, who came and said, heal my, oh no, go away, you're a dog. I mean, it's almost like he was insulting her, and she persevered, and he healed the child. And what did he say? This woman, this pagan woman, has great faith. And yet he turns to the disciples and says, the reason you can't do this is because you lack the faith. Let's back up to the verses we just skipped. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long will I have to put up with this? What was it that he was commenting about? Their lack of faith. Was it the disciples? Yes. Was it the people? Yes. Why? He had come as the Messiah into the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel should have recognized him, particularly because of the miracles, and they didn't. They didn't. They thought at times that he was just there to make people whole, not realizing that he was there to make them whole spiritually, not just physically. How long will I have to put up with this generation for whom the Son of God has come into their presence and you refuse to acknowledge who I am? O ye of little faith. The disciples, why can't I do this? Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed... A mustard seed is a very small thing, okay? We have instruments today that can measure smaller and smaller and smaller things. At the time, a mustard seed was a pretty small thing. If you have that amount of faith, if you have that little bit, what can you do? You can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will be moved and nothing will be impossible for you. So, we've got to ask the question, what is faith? Why is it that the disciples had so little of it? And why were they so mixed up? But before we get to the question of why the disciples are so mixed up, we have to talk about the fact that we're so mixed up. Why do we have so little faith? If Jesus walked in here today, would he look at you like he looked at that centurion and said, wow, you've got great faith? Or would he look at us like the disciples and say, hey, 
little tiny, little tiny faith. By the way, he's, you know, using poetic language here. You can't really put, you know, what what does a mustard seed size of faith look like? All he's talking about is small. This is all you need. What is it that keeps us from having faith today? That's the question we need to address. We've had enough examples in the book of Matthew to this point to try to get some picture of this. Remember a couple of weeks ago, Jesus had sent the disciples out across the, the, uh, the Sea of Galilee. A storm had popped up. Jesus was over here praying. He needed to get over there, so he took a shortcut. He walked across the lake. Now, we had a discussion because my strange mind wants to know, you know, is he walking up and down the waves or is he just kind of walking straight and the waves kind of get out of his way? You know, Moses in miniature. Uh, Whatever it is, he's walking across the water, taking the shortcut, minding his own business. And here's the boat with the disciples and they're panicking. They should. And they see Jesus walking across the water. Now, that would scare the bejeebers out of you. But Peter says, Lord, if it's really you, let me come out and walk on the water with you. And Jesus says, come on. So Peter hops out of the water and he starts walking toward Jesus. This is really cool. Then there's a bolt of lightning over here. And he looks over there and there's a wave over there. And I don't know whether he was walking through the waves or over the waves, but whatever it is, he started watching the waves. And guess what? The moment he started watching the waves, he sank into the water. Why? Because he had taken his eyes off Jesus and he had started looking at the storm. Why is it that we today oftentimes have so little faith because we take our eyes off Jesus and we focus them on the storm that is hitting us at that particular point in time. Whatever it is, there are untold numbers of different storms that hit you and me. I mean, it could be something big, it could be something tiny, it could be whatever. And we take our eyes off God and we look at the storm and we begin to sink because we don't have faith. We don't have faith. Turn, if you would, to the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. If we're going to talk about faith, we have to go to the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. It is the closest thing we have to a definition of faith in the Bible. Verse 1 of chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's kind of strange. What does that mean? What it means is God has given us certain promises. We do not see with our eyes the fulfillment of those promises. But faith says, if God said, then I will act upon that because I know God would not, cannot, will not lie to me. I do not see the end result, but I see the person who told me what the end result would, will be. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The assurance that what God says will happen, will happen. You know, I've said in here before, we use the word hope in a lot of different ways. You know, I hope my football team wins the game. I hope that I have a good lunch. I hope that things work out well tomorrow when I do whatever it is I'm going to do. And we just kind of throw that word hope out. Biblically, is hope is resting on the promises that God has given us about what's going to happen, but we can't see it. Faith 
is the assurance that that hope is valid. The conviction of things not seen. Yes, go ahead. Wishful thinking is what we often use the word hope for today. That's not what the Bible is using it for, okay? The conviction of things not seen. I don't hope that you show up in this class today. Why? Because I can see you. (laughs) You're here. There's no hope involved. I know we can have a discussion about hoping some of you not, no, but we won't go there. That's wishful thinking, right? It's the things that I don't see with my physical eyes. What did Peter see with his physical eyes? Lightning, waves, wind, storm, sink. That's what he saw with his physical eyes. He did not see what Christ could do through him. If you have not read the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, you should. Because the whole chapter is, by faith, this person did this. By faith, this person did this. And it goes on and on and on for the entire chapter. But it says at the end, but some of these people died and never physically saw what God had promised them. Does that mean God's promise is null and void? No, it just means it didn't happen in this world. Skipping to verse 6, which is one of my most often quoted verses, and without faith it is impossible to please him. Without faith it is impossible. It is not difficult, it's not hard, it's impossible. God is looking for people who will believe what he says. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek after him. The two conditions, the two things that faith needs to teach us. There is a God, and it's better to do things God's way. That's what faith is. I get into a situation, any situation, every situation of your day, and I have option A, which is exactly what the world tells me to do. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's evil or wicked. It's just, this is what the world tells me to do right now. Option B is, this is what God tells me to do right now. Faith says, I am going to choose option B. I'm going to do what God tells me to do even when I don't understand the consequences of it, because I trust the person who made the promise. Now, how do we know what the promises are? We read the Bible, and God tells us. Love your enemies. I use this one a lot just because, I don't know, maybe I have a lot of enemies. Love your enemies. Do good to those who do bad to you. Huh. I don't want to do that. Give me another option. Nope. Why do I not do that? Because I do not have the faith that doing things God's way is better than not. I don't. I look at the storm and not God. So, why could they not heal this boy? Because of their lack of faith. You wait a minute. They were able to heal yesterday or the day before or sometime before. Why couldn't they do it today? I would speculate, and this is speculation because it doesn't really tell us. All it does tell us is they didn't have faith. I will speculate that they began to rely on their own strength. I did pretty well yesterday. You know, I I cast that demon out. That person was sick, and I said, in the name of Jesus, whoosh, bam, and it happened. 
I'm pretty slick stuff. And they came to this boy and they said, mumbo jumbo, and it didn't happen because they were beginning to believe in themselves. And we're going to have a discussion in just a moment, if we get to it, about humility. God, through faith, allows us to do great things. But we're going to get really confused if we begin to think that the us are the ones doing the great things. God, through us, allows us to do great things. But if we begin to think, I'm the hot stuff, I'm doing this, we're going to be in trouble. Now, we're going to take a little digression. Then, what does verse uh, 21 say? Verse 21. No, of Matthew. <laughs> Chapter 17. <laughs> Matthew chapter 17, verse 21. By prayer and fasting. Somebody read out of the ESV what verse 21 says. This is a trick question. There is no verse 21 in your ESV. We're going to have the briefest discussions about why there is no verse 21 in the ESV and why there is in the King James and several others and why this shouldn't necessarily bother us too much, okay? We understand, right, that God, when inspiring the authors of the Bible, did not give it to them in English, right? We understand this. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek, a little bit of Aramaic thrown in there. There were the original languages. And when a group of scholars wants to translate the Bible into say, for us, modern English, they go collect the manuscripts that they have available in order to make that translation. Now, some people believe this whole process is like the telephone game. You ever play the telephone game? You know, I whisper something in your ear, you whisper it to the person next to you, you whisper it to the person next to you, next to you, next to you, and by the time you got to the end of the line, the original message is so garbled you can't even recognize it. And they begin to think, well, that's what the Bible is. There's a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation, and we're lost. No, that's not the way it works. Scholars go back to the original copies of the manuscripts, and that's what they use for their translation work. At the time of the Reformation, a man by the name of Erasmus, a Catholic humanist, where humanist is not necessarily a bad word, he was a study of the humanities, decided that we needed to go back to the Greek New Testament. And he collected a handful of manuscripts, the ones that were available to him, and he compiled what is known as the received text. This is the Greek that was available at the time when Jesus was walking around the world. Okay? Now, there were some problems with the received text. First off, he had a finite number of manuscripts to work from. And secondly, he had a, this other little problem. He was a good Catholic. And there were some verses that were in the Jerome's Latin translation of the Bible that just he couldn't find any Greek for. But since the Latin translation was the approved Bible, it had to match. So he backfilled, he took the Latin and he back-translated it to Greek, and he put it in the received text in some passages, okay? 
So when the King James Bible was being translated, they took several English translations and they took the received text and they translated it. Now, I will let you in on a little secret. Since that time, there have been hundreds and hundreds of more copies of the received text that have been found. It is a very good copy of what the Greek New Testament would have been like. But when you start looking at the oldest available Greek manuscripts that are available, they differ a little bit, a little bit, a little bit from the received text. And the question is, do I go with the oldest manuscripts on the assumption that older means it's closer to the time of Christ, or do I go with the majority text, the ones that I have more manuscripts for? When you're doing the translation, you have to make a decision, which am I going to assume is the right answer? The majority text or the older text. And when they wrote the ESV, they went with the older text and said, this is what I'm going to use. Now, last night, I'm sitting there pulling off different modern translations of the Bible. Some of them have this verse in the text in brackets, the New King James, that's what it has. It has it in brackets and say, this is not in the oldest, older manuscripts. Some of them put it as a footnote. Some of them put it right in line. Some of them don't. Does this make us question the reliability of the scripture? And the answer is, it shouldn't. I was brought up on the King James, okay? So I'm sitting here reading this passage, and it says, this comes only by prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting, that's very important. And then I find out in my later days, oh, that verse may or may not have been in the original manuscript. Do I then say, okay, I don't need to worry about prayer and fasting because it's not in this verse? I'll lead you, you know, I'll give you a hint. There are a lot of verses that deal with prayer and fasting. We've talked about them in here. And in fact, if you go over to the Mark passage of this, it says this comes only by prayer. So, there are no, no, none, zero, zilch, major doctrines of the scripture that are affected by the differences between these ancient manuscripts. None. Some of what happened, I believe, is the copyist going, okay, this verse is a little confusing. Let me take that passage from Mark and put it there because that will make more sense. We actually saw this, if you remember, when we were working through the Sermon on the Mount. Do not be angry with your brother. What does the King James say? Angry with your brother without cause, because we recognize that Jesus got angry on occasion. There must be situations in which it's okay to be angry, but the majority of them there's not. So I see some guy saying, okay, that does make sense. And it does make sense. Every time I teach it, I teach it as if that were there but it's not there. It was added as some translator going, ah, this would make more sense if I added this passage. The translation process, don't get in trouble now. The translation process is done by sinful human beings. <gasps> Our church believes, you can go read the doctrinal statement of the church, that the original autographs, the original manuscripts are without error. And I would believe that we have that information available to us today, completely. We have 
a few added words here or there that people either copied from some other passage or they inserted to clarify something, much like a translator would do today. They would do that. You know, there are lots of, I mean, I'm going to get over here in a moment and we're going to talk about shekels. I don't have a clue what a shekel is. I know what a dollar is. So some people do a translation. Let's translate shekels. Let's do that translation. But it doesn't say dollars. It says shekels. So, go ahead. No. Yes. His question is about higher criticism, which was a, um, is a thing that started in Germany several hundred years ago to examine the Bible. Okay, let's take the Bible like it was a work of history. Okay, and I'm going to examine it. Now, there is a form, first off, when we use the word criticism here, we're not necessarily saying, I hate it. Okay, we're not saying I am critical in the sense of, you know, my attitude toward it, although that's what comes out of it, by the way, later. It started out with a really good idea, and that was we need to examine the scripture in the historical context so that we can better understand it, and that's true. For example, in the passage that we're going to read in just a moment, if we get there, we're going to talk about paying a tax for the temple. Well, what's that? Why did they do that? It doesn't tell us here why they did it, but we have historical documents and we can figure that out, as opposed to the taxes paid to the Romans. Okay, how do, So we study history, we study all of that, and we figure out what all of this means in the context in which it was written. But then it went berserk. If we assume that the scriptures are written by human beings with human motives for human reasons, then we start having to ask, why did they write that passage? We look at Caesar's campaigns in Gaul. You know, all of Gaul is divided into three parts, blah, 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 right? Talking about his campaign. Why did Caesar write that? Because he wanted the Romans to know that he was a really great guy. So, whatever good Caesar does, that gets written up. Whatever bad Caesar does, eh, we won't mention that one. A human author writing a human book for a particular reason, let's figure out that reason so we, okay, let's assume that people wrote the Bible the same way. Why did Matthew write this passage about Jesus going up on the mountain? Because he wanted to show that Jesus was God. Now, did it really happen? Ah, that's irrelevant. That's what higher criticism leads to. And you get into all kinds of bizarre things, you know. They had the, in fact, it still exists, the committee to look at the, the, uh, the text of the Gospels to find out what Jesus really said. I'm not making this up, by the way. This is where you get the pink letter edition of the Bible. I'm not making this up. You know that in a lot of our Bibles, the words of Jesus are in red, okay? So we have the words of Jesus in red. We have the words that aren't Jesus's in black. Well, we get this committee together. And we say, okay, I know it says Jesus said that, but did Jesus really said that, say that? So we'll vote on it. So if we all agree that Jesus said it, we'll make it in red. If we all agree that he didn't say it, we'll make it in black. If half of us agree, you're ready for this, right? If half of us think he did, we'll make it in pink. And they have shades of red based on how much authority they think that is higher criticism. I will tell you right out, our church does not accept that. We believe the scripture in the original autographs was divinely inspired by God and is profitable and is without error. Now, when I translate something, I may work as diligently as I can, but something of me is going to sneak into that. It is. That's why 
good translations today are done by groups of godly men and we look at each other's work and we go, I'm not sure that's the right word. Really? Why? Okay. And we have discussions about that. We have discussions. And we go back, not we, I don't read Greek, they go back to the original manuscripts and yes, there are some variances among the original manuscripts. What did I say a while ago? None of which affect any major doctrine of the scripture. Yes. And the differences that there are are not significant in and of themselves. Now, having said all of that, then what does verse 21 say? Read it to me again. I'm going to teach you verse 21. Why? How do we gather faith? How do we get faith? On the authority of the entire scripture, not just whether verse 21 happens to be here or not, we are told that we are to pray and fast, and God will honor that by giving us faith. Faith. And that's what we need. You see, so often... We have this idea that I'm going to sit in that chair until God drops faith on me like a brick. He has given us his word. He has given us the Holy Spirit. He has given us the means to communicate with him through prayer. And what do we do? We sit in the chair and we watch the football game and we complain that we can't get anything done. Not you. I'm talking about me. <sighs> and as they were gathering, verse 22, which is there, by the way. Go ahead, Jerry. Well, let me digress. Uh, do we have the original manuscript? We do not. What is the, uh, what, where, where is the beginning of what we have? We have manuscripts that are 100 or 200 years old. I mean, two from the second or third century. We have old manuscripts, but we don't have the complete, this is the one that Paul wrote. It's got his signature at the bottom. Manuscripts don't last, okay? They don't. It's amazing. I mean, you can go up to the, the Bible Museum up in D.C., and you can see really, really old manuscripts. But manuscripts even at the time, fall apart, particularly if they're being used, which these would have been used regularly. It is interesting that you read these stories about how the Old Testament was copied meticulously, copy to copy, and they worshiped the writing, and they made, they went to great lengths to ensure there wasn't any translation error, I mean, copy errors. By the time we got to the New Testament, Paul sends off a letter to the church at Ephesus, and everybody sends their guy over, and they make a copy, and off they go. Because they wanted the message, they weren't necessarily worshiping the piece of paper. So, there were lots of copies made, and we have some really old ones. In fact, I do not have the information in front of me, but if you start looking at, you know, Caesar's Gallic campaigns, you know, we have a copy that's a thousand years after the event occurred or something. I am making up the numbers because I don't really remember them. We have all these ancient manuscripts. With the copies we have are thousands of years old away from the original. 
when it gets to the scripture, we're within 100 to 200 years. So we have old, old, old copies. We do not have the originals. Nobody is claiming this is the one that Paul wrote. This is the one that Matthew wrote. Now, that also sort of explains why the majority text, the received text, there's so many more of them, okay? I make a copy, I have a copy of the original. I send it down to Alexandria, which by the way, the oldest set is known as the Alexandrian text. It's down in Alexandria. Guess what they don't speak in Alexandria? Greek. I send a copy of it to Greece. In Greece, everybody reads Greek. Let's make lots of copies. So I end up with lots of copies, but they're not necessarily the oldest. The oldest may be the one down in the library down here. That's why just counting the number of copies may not be the best or certainly not the only. Now, today, translators, when they work, do what Don was just talking about. Let's look at this one. Let's look at this one. Let's look at this one. Let's look at this. Let's look at that. Let's get together and do, why did, and they work through all of that. We have so much more than Erasmus had, than Jerome had when he translated it into Latin. We have so much more than they have because archaeology has done some fascinating things. Yes? No. His question is, do the recent discoveries change the text? And the answer is no, with one possible exception. People keep finding other Gospels, and they keep wanting to include them. Okay, the Gospel of Thomas. Well, maybe there was a reason it wasn't included in the first place. Okay, so I have the Gospel of this and the Gospel of that. There were lots of people writing letters. Paul was not the only person writing letters. Everybody was writing letters. And a lot of these letters have really good stuff in them. Read them. Benefit from them. But we believe that certain writings were declared to be the Word of God. And the early church had done that really very early on. The Catholic Church will tell you that that is what gives the Catholic church the authority because they made that decision. I would contend the decision had been made long before they got into involved in the discussion. Okay? I have given you the briefest, briefest discussion of something that has occupied hundreds of thousands of books, manuscripts, as they work through all of that. What I want you to take from all of this is whether or not verse 21 is or is not included does not change our understanding of the passage. It doesn't weaken our understanding of the importance of prayer and fasting. It doesn't weaken anything regarding, I mean, if there were a verse missing that said, and Jesus married Mary of Magdalene, they lived happily ever after, <laughs> then we'd talk about it, which is what some people want to find in the gospel of Who's whoever, okay? So, whew. as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. You've noticed this, right? This is like the third time in the last chapter and a half where Jesus has told them what's going to happen. At first, they argued with him, said, no way. Now they're at least accepting it, but it says they're distressed, which tells me, as I hinted at a couple of weeks ago, they understand the put-to-death part, because who doesn't understand that part, right? They don't understand raised from the dead part, because, you know, if I told you I was going to be killed and I was going to be raised from the dead in three days, that's kind of exciting. That's kind of cool. Unless, of course, you don't really believe it. The raising from the dead part. Everybody can believe the getting killed part. So, they were distressed. 
When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the taxes? And he said, yes. I don't really understand that, by the way. Does your teacher not pay the taxes? And he answers yes. Is he saying yes, he does not pay the taxes? Or is he saying yes, that he pays the taxes? I think he's saying yes, he does pay the taxes, but... And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open his mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Okay, some people confuse this passage with one we're going to see in a couple of chapters where they come to Jesus and they set him up. They say, should we pay taxes to the Romans? And we'll cover that one at the time, but that one is clearly a setup. Because if he says, sure, you should pay them, then the people are going to hate him. If he says, no, you shouldn't pay pay the Roman tax, the Romans are going to hate him and they're going to kill him. So they view that as a win-win for them. There is some speculation whether this particular passage is a setup. You know, he comes to Capernaum and a guy comes up and says, have you paid your taxes? Every Jewish male above the age of 20 was required to pay a tax to support the temple and the religious community. Have you paid your tax? Now, it may be a setup. You know, they may want to get him in trouble with the Jewish authorities as if he wasn't already in enough problem with the Jewish authority. Or it may just be they wanted the tax. You know, I'm the tax collector. I want your money. Give me your shekels. It is interesting, by the way, that the tax for the temple was paid in one currency, and the tax that we'll talk about in a couple of chapters to Rome was paid in a different currency. Why? Do you remember what Jesus is going to say over there? Whose picture's on that? Well, Caesar's. We'll give to Caesar. They weren't going to let a coin with Caesar's picture on it be used to support the temple. So they had money over here, and they had money over there. And the guy says, have you paid your taxes? And I'm going to assume right now that he was just collecting taxes. Could have been a setup. We'll just assume he's just collecting the taxes. And Peter says, of course he did. And he walks over and says, and he's going to say, Jesus, this guy just talked to me. But before he did, before he brought it up, Jesus said, hmm, Peter, let's talk about taxes. Jesus doesn't know what's going on, by the way, in case you haven't figured that out. Who pays taxes? That's what Jesus' question is. Does the king's son pay tax? Does Herod's son get a visit from the tax collector, and does he have to fork over some money? And the answer is, of course not. The king's son does not have to pay any taxes. They go to the other people, the people who they rule, and say, give me money for taxes. Hmm. Okay. Jesus says, I've got my own kingdom. He doesn't say that here. He's going to say that later. I've got my own kingdom. I'm the king, and you are a child of the king. Question, do you have to pay the tax? Well, the answer from the story is no. You don't have to pay the tax. The sons are free. However, however, not to give offense to them, Take that phrase and write it down, sear it in your brain until you remember it. We talk at length when we get over into Paul, 
we talk about Christian liberty. But we also talk about not using that liberty to cause offense to other people. If someone tells you to deny Christ, you're not supposed to do it. But if the government authority says, I want a couple of shekels from you, you're of a different kingdom. We are merely sojourners in this world. But not to give offense, we do what we're supposed to do. We pay the two shekels. Now, we have a miraculous event that occurs here. Jesus says, Peter, grab your fishing rod, reel, go out, catch us a fish. Okay, Peter understood catching fish. He probably wouldn't have understood a rod and reel, but that's a whole different story. Take your rod and reel out there, catch a fish, open up the first fish, and there's going to be a coin in that fish's mouth. Now, it doesn't tell us the rest of the story, but we're going to assume that he went out there and he caught a fish, pulled out the fish, opened up the fish, there was a coin, and he went and paid the tax for Peter and Jesus. We, as believers, are going to cause offense because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. People do not want to know that they're sinners. They do not want to know that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. That is going to cause offense. Jesus came into the darkness of the world and the darkness hated him because they loved the darkness. That's a reality. But we don't go around poking people in the eye just because we can. And that's hard, by the way. It's hard in politics. It's hard in relationships. It's hard in every environment. I just want you to know how great I am, so I'm going to poke you in the eye. I'm not going to pay my taxes just because I worship Jesus. And what have you done? You've got the people offended for no reason. Wait a minute, there is a reason. It's my money! It's my money! And there's all kinds of passages dealing with the love of money. We'll actually have a longer discussion about taxes later when we talk about rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar and the things to God. So, don't get too wrapped up in the taxes right now. That'll come later. You can get upset then. At this point, it's not causing unnecessary offense that hinders the spread of the gospel. Well, we're way out of time. But we did finish the chapter. What did we learn from all of this? We learned about the necessity of faith. What is faith? It is the assurance of things hoped for. It means that I take the promise of God, I take the promise, and I live according to that promise. Why do we not? Why do we not have more faith? Because we're too busy looking at the storms around us. We're too busy doing the things of this world when we should be focusing on Christ and the things of Christ. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that we would study your promises and that we, that we would live based on those promises. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.